0: Matthew chapter 20, we pick up in verse 29, Matthew's writing, and he says, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him, referring to Jesus, of course. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, But they cried out all the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. So if Uh, this morning. If you happen to be new with us this morning and you're joining us online, this is the first time you've been with us. We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. We study the Bible verse by verse because we recognize that the Bible is God's eternal word, right? That it's powerful and we're strengthened by it. We recognize that it's the wisdom of God given to us. It's a revelation of God given to us that we might know him and know his heart for us. And it's my heart for us as a church and certainly for us as individuals that we would never grow tired of the privilege that we have to open the word of God, to read it, to learn it, and to apply it to our lives. Um, One thing, you know, I've noticed as I've studied the word of God for these many years is that the world seems very frequently to be backwards, 180 degrees out uh, to what the Bible teaches us. For instance, last week, we looked at the pathway to greatness. And, uh, you know, the world would have us uh, believe that we need to work hard, climb that mountain of success, you know, in order to be great. The more people we have um, under us, working for us, serving us, you know, the greater we are uh, in this world. But Jesus said, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be uh, your servant. You know, in other words, as we mentioned last week, and if we've, as we've frequently heard, you know, the way up is, is down. Uh, so another example of, of the backwardness of the world is the saying, seeing is believing. You know, if you happen to be from Missouri, you're very uh, familiar with this concept. It says right on their license plate, Missouri, the show me state. And, uh, you know, I don't think many of us can really argue too much with the considerable amount of truth behind the statement, seeing is believing. But the Bible would teach us that the opposite is also true, that believing is seeing. You know, to a large degree, we see that truth at work in the world. You know, before a building is ever constructed, an engineer, an architect, you know, has to work to some degree under the principle of believing is seeing. You know, they have to operate under a certain amount of faith that precedes seeing. And scientists, you know, working for the good of all mankind, developing drugs, you know, to combat fatal diseases around the world, I mean, that work begins in their heart, you know, operating under the influence of believing is seeing. And honestly, can anyone, can anyone point to any great work of art where the artist didn't first engage in a certain amount of believing is seeing, right? Believing or faith very often comes before seeing but we frequently can be trapped in the idea that seeing is what's required before we're ever uh, able to believe. That somehow seeing is believing is always superior to believing is seeing. But the truth is, it's not always that way. That's not always the case. You know, personally, I find it interesting when the God of the Bible calls us to place our faith in Him you know, to put our our faith in his existence, uh, to place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, for our salvation. He does so much on the basis of seeing is believing. The Bible teaches us that all of creation, all the creation that we see with the naked eye, you know, as we look up into the heavens and gaze at the stars, as we take time to contemplate the universe and, and uh, the order behind it, the planets orbiting the sun in a predictable uh, manner, you know, the placement of the earth in our galaxy and even in our solar system so that uh, it can support life. You know, as we take time to think about the different ecosystems of the world, you know, the rainforests and the deserts and the oceans and the life that's found within them that's just suited for their environment. Um, You know, as we turn from the heavens and look at the world of cells and organisms, too small to see without the aid of of a microscope, you know, we consider the complexity of a single cell, the nucleus and the cytoplasm, you know, the smooth and rough endoplasmic reticulum, the mitochondria and so forth. All that's around us, all that we see right, declares that there's a creator. The Bible teaches us that there's a great creator behind that's responsible for the creation that's all around us, a designer behind the design. Every place we see it in in nature, every place we look, we see God's handiwork. And when you look at different structures, you know, found within the human body, You know, I've spent a lot of time studying the human body. I'm just blown away by what you see. Structures that are so simple, yet extremely complex. For instance, the human eye, the rods that are within the eye that allow us to see black and white, and then the cones that are within the eye that allow us to see color, Um, the iris you know, restricting, regulating the amount of light that comes into your eye and the lens altering its shape so you're able to focus. And that focus happens in a very instant of time from far to close up. It happens so quickly. Um, you know, it's just also amazing. It's just an incredible design. You know, and there are so many simple yet complex things occurring every second of every day within your body, should they cease to exist, it would be incompatible with life. Or in other words, you know, without them, you'd die. And it all speaks of a great master designer. And personally, it blows me away. With all the intelligence of man, uh, we still can't create a, a robot that can walk and run. We can get one that walks. You know, one that kind of hobbles, but to walk and run, I mean, we haven't done it yet. You know, with all the intelligence of man, you know, uh, we can't create a computer that even comes close to rival the the human brain. And when God calls on us to believe in the creation of man, the creation of both Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God is not asking us to, to exercise some type of blind faith Um, or to just take him at his word in order to believe in the creation account. When the Bible describes the sin of Adam and Eve, which caused both man and all of God's creation to fall from perfection into imperfection, I mean, we see the evidence of it. Man's fallen nature and and his imperfections, we see the evidence of it in our own lives, don't we? Uh, The world in which we live, is full of the evidence of uh, the fallenness of mankind. Have you been watching the news? Have you been hearing the spikes in violent crimes recently? Have you been watching the news and seeing the videos of widespread looting in our major uh, cities through these stores? Um, Have you been watching the news? Something of, of great interest and concern to me is the increased concern over Russia invading Ukraine militarily. I mean, the fallen nature of man is seen in the wickedness and oppression that's widespread in our country and abroad today. And God is asking us to place our faith in his existence based on seeing, seeing that precedes faith. But at the same time, You can't disregard the fact that there's much in a relationship with the infinite, almighty God. Uh, If that relationship with God is going to grow, that growth can only take place if we're willing to operate under the banner of believing and seeing. And what I mean by that is in many cases, you know, faith must proceed seeing in our lives Uh, as we simply obey God's word, you know, no matter what the obstacles or circumstances are. You know, I think people so often in life, I think, you know, that people think that all the world is seeing is believing. And then when they look at Christianity and they consider the claims of the Bible, they think it's all believing is seeing. But You know, God's a little more complicated than all of that, right? It's not an issue of either or. The issue is that they're both, they both play a very important role. They're both true at the same time. They both must occur if any or, should I say, and every person, you know, wants to have a relationship with the Lord. Those things have to be present. In this portion of scripture we're looking at this morning, we see a case where believing is seeing. Verse 29 says, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And now the context of the events before us, we're told, is, um, you know, it happens as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the city of Jericho. Jesus is within a week of ending his three and a half years of public ministry. He's headed to Jerusalem, where he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. He's going to go to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified, taking upon himself your sins and mine. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, as he's leaving Jericho, he's accompanied by this this great multitude. And one of the reasons that there's this great multitude following Jesus at this time is because he's going to Jerusalem, again, where he's going to be crucified, during the Jewish feast of Passover. You know, the law of Moses required every Jewish male in Israel and in the surrounding nations uh, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So they're coming from all over. They're coming with their wives. They're coming with their kids. And because there's so many people headed up to Jerusalem for the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would typically swell to You know, somewhere roughly about 2 million people or more. And all the roads leading to Jerusalem would just be jam-packed with people. And Jesus, he's traveling a main road uh, that's going to Jerusalem, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And just so you can get your bearings, maybe you can picture it in your mind, Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So we're told that Jesus is surrounded by this great multitude as he travels to Jerusalem. And you can just imagine, or at least you got to try to imagine, uh, just how excited all these people uh, would be traveling to Jerusalem for Passover with Jesus. Jesus's popularity with the common man right now is just off the charts, you know. And you want to put yourself in the place of these common people who are traveling with Jesus. You know, they, they wake up this morning. You know, you're on this trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, you've been planning this trip for weeks, maybe even months, you know? And and uh, you think to yourself, you know, it just can't get any better. You know what? I'm with my wife, or I'm with my husband. You know, our kids are here with us, our neighbors are also traveling with us. I mean, it just it's, it's just such a joyous time, right? Your entire village is going with you to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And, uh, you know, it would be a million times better than the best Super Bowl party. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. People are thinking to themselves, you know what, it doesn't get any better than this. This is, this is what life is all about. And then on that trip, you just place yourself in that crowd. On that trip, you get word that you're sharing your trip to Jerusalem with a wildly popular celebrity, right? You're sharing this trip with none other than Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples are on the same road we're on. You know what? Maybe they're just, you know, up ahead. Maybe they're a minute or two uh, behind, right? And you can just begin to see people, how they would get word that Jesus is traveling with them. So they begin to speed up or maybe they begin to slow down, you know, just in hopes that they might be able to get a glimpse of him or maybe hopefully hear him say something, you know, hear him speak. And you just, again, believe me, the excitement at this time is probably palpable. I mean, it's just overwhelming. We're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the peace of Passover and we're traveling with Jesus? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And now it's while leaving the city of Jericho, right? Matthew tells us that Jesus comes to the attention of these two men. Matthew tells us the condition of these two men. They're blind, Mark's gospel focuses on one of these two men's, and Mark calls him by name, and his name is Blind Bartimaeus, right? And as Mark focuses on Blind Bartimaeus, he adds a description that he, probably both of these two blind men, he, he tells us that they're begging. Now, in that culture Being blind meant you were going to beg for the rest of your life if you were going to survive. That's just all there is to it, right? Uh, These two things always accompanied one another, blindness and begging. And as we'll see, these two blind men are determined, determined not to miss this opportunity to cry out to Jesus. Now, In this portion of scripture, these two blind, you know, the blindness of these two men, they're a picture, they're a representation, they're a type of the spiritual blindness that every single one of us are born into the world with um, as descendants of Adam and Eve. You know, uh, there's an entire spiritual realm all around us that we have no knowledge of or understanding of. You know, we have no revelation of its existence. We have no insight into it until uh, the the Holy Spirit comes into our life, until we invite Jesus into our life, until we're born again. It's only when God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our life that our eyes are open to that spiritual realm. The Holy Spirit spoke of the spiritual blindness of the world that Jesus was born into this way. John 1 3, verse, uh, verse 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shone in the darkness. Blindness is darkness, by the way, right? The life shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Bible also declares in regards to our salvation, when we're saved, we're called out of darkness, out of blindness, into a marvelous light. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Also, 2 Corinthians 4 verses three and four. Paul writes, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age, speaking of the devil, has blinded. Now, this verse tells us, right, that a person can have physical eyes that see and still have a mind that's blinded. Paul says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul also wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Again, in the book of Colossians, Paul writes, Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And Jesus himself said something very similar. He said, John three nineteen, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So these two blind men are sitting there along the road just outside Jericho. They're blind and they're begging. And they're a, spirit, a picture of the spiritual condition of unregenerate man. Now, beggars sitting alongside the road, it was a pretty common thing back in those days. I mean, it's a pretty common thing to see nowadays in our day. I mean, you can hardly, uh, you know, come to any intersection without seeing somebody on the side of the road asking for money. And uh, in fact, I mean, you can go almost any major city, certainly, but almost any place in the world, and you'd see people there begging alongside the road. And because Jericho was a fairly wealthy city, it was a pretty common sight to see beggars outside of the city. And during the feast times, especially during the feast time, the number of beggars, I mean, they they would just increase their numbers along the road exponentially. And the reason for this was, well, you know, they wanted to take advantage of a religious crowd, right? That are making their way up, up the road to to Jerusalem. You know, uh, religious people, they tend to be more generous than others. And, you know, not, uh, of course, not every person that makes up a religious crowd is in the same place in their walk uh, with the Lord as, as, you know, others. Some people in the crowd, you know, they've had a tremendous year. And they're aware of God, how much grace and goodness God has bestowed upon them. And they're just overwhelmed with the blessings of God that they've enjoyed that year. And they're so full of thanksgiving and thankfulness to God that they're just looking for an opportunity to express their thanks in some physical way. And here are these blind beggars along the road looking for a handout. So they throw them a few coins, just so that they can share their blessings with these guys. And then, you know, you have others on the opposite end of the spectrum. They haven't been the good Jews that they're supposed to be, right? And, you know, they're headed up for the feast in Jerusalem, and uh, they're going to come in contact with God real soon, face-to-face, so to speak. And, uh, you know, they have a guilty conscience, right? So they come up to these blind beggars, and it's a last chance for them to do some good before they reach uh, Jerusalem. So they empty their pockets out into the laps of these blind beggars. So, you know, during the feast times, it it was a pretty good time, if there's such a thing. It was a pretty good time to be a blind beggar. You know, it's kind of like, you know, this, this time of year where many merchants make up a good portion of their annual income just off Christmas sales. So that's kind of like what's going on with the blind beggars here during feasts in the ancient world. So these two blind men, they're sitting alongside the road. Money is being dropped into their laps by the passing crowd. And they're thinking, you know what? This is great. It doesn't get any better than this, you know? But things are about to change for these two men. You know, things are about to get better than they could have ever imagined. And we need to remember that these guys, they don't have the gospels to read. You know, they don't know how this story is gonna wind up, how it's going to end. You know, they didn't wake up that day and say, okay, you know, we're gonna go meet Jesus along the road. Uh, you know, he's going to be going up to to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And today's the day that Jesus is going to heal us. We're going to receive our sight. You know, they didn't know that. They woke up that morning and it's just another day. Their plan for the day was to make their way out to their spot along the road and hopefully get enough money so that they could buy some food for the day. And the best that they could hope for is that God And the people traveling up to Jerusalem would be generous to them. Neither one of these two guys had a clue that their lives are going to be changed forever that day. And you know what? I often wonder when I come into church, how much of a clue we have of what God wants to do in our life, how he wants to change our life. I think that there's plenty of people that come to church, you know, and they're just like, Man, bed was so warm. I don't even know why I'm here. You know what? I mean, that guy just goes on forever. You know, I think there are people that, that are watching online, you know. Uh, they, they wonder why they're watching. You know, they just accidentally clicked on our link. And, you know, they hear the music and then, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. You know, maybe I'll just uh, stick around. I kind of like the music. I like to see what they got to say. You know, people can come to church And have no idea that their lives can be changed. Or that God has the power and the desire to change their lives today. You know, and God can change your life today. Maybe you woke this morning thinking this is just going to be another day. You know, it's just another day. It's just like all the other days. But God has his eyes on you. And today is that day your life, you know, will change for eternity, you know. It's about to take a turn for the better. And you know, I think as I say that, I think people can hear me and believe. I'm just talking to people that possibly could be here, possibly watching online, that aren't saved. But you know what? I'm actually speaking to every believer that's here today, Every believer that's watching online today, my comments are directed to you. You know, God has a plan to draw you into a deeper walk with him. That's God's heart. You know, a walk that's beyond our wildest dreams. And we need to say yes to him in regards to whatever it is he wants to do in our life. You know, we need to say yes to him and place our entire life and our faith in him Into his hands. For these two guys, their life is completely dominated by their blindness, right? By the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. Before the fall, there was no blindness in the garden or in the human condition. You know, and one of the things that's interesting for us as human beings is that all of us, you know, in some way or another, bear the marks of the fall of Adam and Eve in our lives. You know, the predominant mark uh, of the fall in these two guys' lives was physical blindness. But all of us bear a mark. You know, for some, it's, um, you know, bitterness maybe or something like that. You know, just a little bit of fallenness, right? For others, you know, uh, it's, it's something else. But as we grow older, it gets bigger. It becomes more predominant. It's more evident, um, you know, more pronounced, you know, and that bit of fallenness in our life, it, be, it can become so big that eventually it becomes, you know, the identifying thing in our life, right? To the point where when people look at us or when they hear our name, you know, uh, the first thing they think of is some crazy aspect of the fall of man that has been introduced into our life. Uh, It's taking control of our lives. Again, it can become a dominating factor in our lives. It can can uh, become what we're known for. Like I said, bitterness is one, you know? And, you know, when families see us, you know, neighbors hear of us, close friends and acquaintances, you know, that's what they think of when they think of us. You know, the fact of the matter is we all bear the consequence of the sin of the Garden of Eden, right? It may not be physical blindness. It may be addiction to a certain sin, you know, addiction to sex or addiction to uh, alcohol, you know, uh, some other vice, you know, some drug or something like that, Um, you know, anger, outbursts of wrath, you know, maybe it's a habitual lying problem, you know, Um, always deceiving people. You know, it's something that started out small and looking back, you know, a person can identify that that sin began at a very early age in their life. But, you know, after 30 years or so, they're even disgusted with, you know, that sin in their life, how that sin has taken over their life. And they can't even tell a story now without twisting it or inflating it. Or they're always looking for an angle, always looking for an advantage of the situation to take advantage of another. And they begin to hate themselves for what they become. And uh, they hate that sin. But they're seemingly powerless against it. A person can be, you know, terminally selfish, self-centered, power-hungry. Right? A person can be completely and totally dominated by jealousy. You know, any one of these things can uh, become our identity in life just as much as blindness uh, identified these two beggars, just as much as blindness identified blind Bartimaeus. Humanly speaking, these two blind men, they're hopelessly and totally incapable of changing themselves. I mean, they're completely powerless to change their situation. And the same is true for each of us. You can't change yourself. You know, as much as I desire change in my life. You know what? I can't change myself. And Jeremiah, he, he said it this way. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you may also do good who are accustomed to do evil. You know, what? I just recognize the truth of that statement in my life. You know, we we want to notice as we're looking at these things, we want to notice the condition of these two men is also beyond the help of their fellow man, right? These two guys are hopelessly helpless to change their situation, and no one else is able to address their need. There's nothing anyone can do in regards to their fallenness. The best anyone can hope to do is to help make these two guys comfortable in their condition. And it's the same with us. No one can do in our lives what God alone can do, right? Good people, wonderful people, the best of religious people. All they can do is to try to comfort or pity me in my condition, right? Maybe they can try to convey to me some kind of understanding why I am the way that I am, but they can't provide me or for you, for that matter. They can't provide us the necessary power to bring change into our lives. That's something that only God can do, right? Now, the lives of these two men, they are changed. And they are changed based upon five simple things found in our passage. And our lives can be changed based on the same five simple things. They heard, they cried out, they came, they believed, and they followed Jesus. Those are the five simple things that all of us can do for change in our life. Notice verse 30. It says, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, right? Luke's gospel says, as the crowd of people passes by, blind Bartimaeus, he asked, you know, what's this mean? What's going on? He heard something out of the ordinary. And one of the things that we know is that when a person loses one of their senses, you know what the other senses kind of kick in, they become more acute, right? They're compensating for the loss of that that sense. When a person loses their vision, hearing especially uh, kicks in and takes on a role for a blind person that it wouldn't uh, take on for a sighted person, right? And the reason why is, Our sense of hearing is not as critical when we have, um, you know, the the sense of sight. But it becomes very important for a blind person. And for these two men, their ears are like satellite dishes, right? They're hearing everything. They're hearing every detail. They know when a person stops right in front of them. They know when people are walking fast um, or slow past them. They can tell if a person is overweight or if they're very slender, if they're tall, if they're short, just by the sound of their footsteps and the length of their stride. You know, they hear money jingling in a person's pocket, a football filled away. And you know, uh, they probably know exactly how much money is dropped into their laps just by the sound of the coins rustling on uh, their robe making up their lap. They can differentiate between a large crowd that's passing by and a small amount of people uh, that's walking past. Uh, They're used to crowds walking up and down this road, especially during the feast time. And yet something happens in this crowd. Maybe it's a few words that these blind men hear in the crowd, and they begin to sense that something different is happening something that's never happened in a religious crowd before. They can't see it, of course. They can't figure out what it could be. They can't imagine what it could be. But then the news reaches their ears that it's Jesus of Nazareth that's passing by. And when they hear this news, boy, I bet you it's like a dozen different emotions exploding within their heart. You know, excitement, you know, hope. But at the same time, you know maybe a little panic maybe a little disappointment you know thinking this is the solution to my problem followed by the thought what am i going to do he's going to pass right by me and not even notice me i mean you know how these things can race through your mind right when there's when you want something so very bad and you realize it's probably not even going to happen right it's probably not even going to happen. All this stuff is going on in an instant in the, in the mind because this is the one. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Jesus that these two, men's have, these two men have heard about for the last three and a half years. You know, the single most often recorded miracle of Jesus, the miracle that's most frequently recorded in the gospel, right, is Jesus giving sight to people who are blind. And you can bet, as Jesus started restoring the sight of all these blind people throughout all of Israel, boy, you can bet that news spread like wildfire, just went out. Every blind person, I guarantee you, every single person that was blind knew about Jesus, right? That he alone possessed the power to restore the sight of those who were blind. And the hope of these two guys had to be, you know, maybe someday, maybe someday Jesus will come close enough that he might heal my blindness, right? And as these two uh, are sitting there begging, the unthinkable, right? The unimaginable happens. You know, and that's that. Jesus comes within shouting distance of them. And again, put yourself in the shoes of these two guys. They're trying to process all of this in an instant in time. You know, the hope of a miracle, the excitement of the moment, a chance to be touched by God. And notice in verse 30, it says, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out. They begin to cry out when they heard that Jesus was near and the word cried out there in the original Greek, it literally means to croak, not like to croak XX game over, not like that, you know, but to croak like a frog, right? The word means to, to cry out, it means to croak. They begin to shout at the top of their lungs, and they probably haven't done that for a very long time. They probably haven't used their voices like this, you know, since forever, Suddenly, they're trying to project their voices, you know, across this crowd. The Greek word used there means to croak or to shriek or to scream. And Thayer's definition of the word is to cry out, to cry aloud, to vociferate, particularly of inarticulate cries, you know? It's cries with the idea of the desperate cry of an animal. There's a complete, total desperation in the heart of these two men as they cry out to the Lord for change in their lives. You know, I'd ask you this morning, is there a desperation in your life this morning? Is there something that's moving you uh, to a sense of desperation? You know, if there is, you know, take heart. It's a good thing. You know, desperation is something that um, our Lord takes notice of. It's something that Jesus responds to. Now, as these two cry out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Notice what the crowd does in verse 31. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Now, the word warned there in the original language means to rebuke. The crowd rebukes these two men but it means more than just to rebuke. It means to rebuke with an idea of a threat, right? So the crowd is telling these two guys, you better shut up or else, right? For blind men, you know, the threat of anyone, you know, threatening them with uh, physical violence. I mean, that's one thing You know, a blind person would be totally incapable. There'd be no match for anyone that threatens them with violence. They'd have no defense, right? There'd be nothing they could do. They'd be at the mercy of those people. But for a crowd to issue that kind of threat, that would represent a considerable pressure to be silent for these two men. For some reason, the crowd thinks these two men are like an annoyance in the situation. They're completely uh, an embarrassing, uh, you know, event right now. They're embarrassing everyone, and they say, "You guys better shut up, or we're going to rough you up. You guys are making a scene. Knock it off." In the face of all this discouragement, we read in verse thirty-one, they cried out all the more. I mean, you know what? You got to love these guys, man. You know what? There's something to be said for perseverance. There's something to be said for a, a stick to in life. These two guys are examples for us. We can never allow anyone in the world to keep us from crying out to Jesus to meet the need that the sin of Adam and Eve has brought into our lives. You know what? Don't let your mom or dad, don't let your husband or wife, Don't let your kids, don't let your friends or neighbors, don't let anyone talk you out of crying out to Jesus Christ in desperation to meet your need, to bring a change into your life forever, right? And if the people in your life attempt to silence you, you cry out to Jesus all the more, you know, with an even greater determination to be heard. You know, we also want to note in verse 30 and 31 that they call Jesus Son of David. That's a messianic title if you didn't know it. These two men are declaring that they recognize Jesus to be the promised Messiah. On what basis? On the basis of Old Testament scriptures. There's an element in the lives of these two men of seeing as believing as well as believing as seeing. Right? The prophet Isaiah declared 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene that when the Messiah does come, one of the things that he would do is he would heal the blind and restore their sight. These two men recognize that no one else is doing that except Jesus. Right? And they believe that Jesus was the Messiah based on the Old Testament scripture. He alone has the power to change lives like no one else, but God. You know, when when I look at these two men, I see men who could have had a million excuses to just give up and just accept the circumstances that you know life has handed them. You know, they could have uh, you know just said "woe is me" kind of thing, right? But they refused to ex- give in to the excuses. They They refuse to give in to the excuses. Why? Because you know what? They're not looking for excuses. They're looking for a way out of their condition. They're way out of their situation. You know, sadly, there are plenty of people in life who are willing just to accept their situation. Just accept their condition. You know, they might even get more excited that they can continue on in their sin and their fallenness than they would get over the news that there's a way to be delivered from it, right? To be saved from it. Jesus offers each of us an opportunity for a changed life. Now, let us turn our eyes on Jesus and see what happens next. Verse 32 says, So Jesus stood still and called them, You know, these two men uh, came to Jesus. Well, how do you know they came to Jesus, Gary? Because Jesus has a conversation with them. Jesus is just walking down the road. He's being thronged by this great multitude of people. And then he begins to hear uh, a cry, a shriek, you know, something that sounds like croaking. You know, it's the screaming of these two guys. And again, you just want to think about what's going on in Jesus's mind at this time right? He's walking down the road. He's in the middle of a crowd that has its own life entirely. This crowd is headed towards Jerusalem, right? How on earth could he stop this crowd? He could have easily said to himself, you know, I can't stop for every, you know, uh, beggar along the road that calls out my name. And we don't want to forget. We don't want to miss this. We don't want to forget what Jesus is doing here. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. You know, it's just a little over a week that he's going to have a crown of thorns on his head, right? That he's going to be blasphemed by Jew and Gentile. That his face is going to be covered and spit and his own blood, right? He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to be crucified. And you know, those are the things that are probably on his mind. Those are the things that he's probably thinking about right? They're just what's around the corner for him. And yet, when he hears the desperate cry of these two blind men, he stops the entire procession, stops in his tracks right there. He stops everything, and he calls these two men to himself, and these two men came. And I think it's, you know, very important to realize, as this whole scene is unfolding for us here, it's something that that is a tremendous delight to Jesus, right? You put yourself in Jesus' place. He's so full of love. He's so full of mercy. He's so full of grace. He's so compassionate towards those in need, towards each of us as fallen human beings, right? When you have as much mercy as Jesus has, you know, uh, the problem isn't that you're afraid that you're going to run out of mercy, the problem is finding enough people who are willing to take it off your hands, right? When you cry out to Jesus for help or for salvation, you know, no one ever need worry that Jesus will say, you know, you kind of caught me at a bad time. I'm a little tapped out. Maybe, you know, you come back in a couple of weeks when I get paid. You know what? That'll never happen. We'll never hear Jesus say anything even close to that. Jesus is willing to bring this whole parade to a stop in order to answer the cries of these two men. The Bible teaches us that when someone cries out to Jesus for salvation, the entirety of heaven comes to a halt. And the angels, all the angels in heaven explode into celebration. And more than that, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 33, whoever confesses me before men, Him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. You know, it's almost like he can't wait to make that confession when we make that confession, right? And that confession takes place on the day of our salvation. Faith still brings a stop to Jesus' activity and it grabs a hold of his attention, right? Imagine what it must have happened in the hearts of these two men when Jesus called them. Imagine what they must have thought, what they must have felt as they kind of grope their way through the crowd of people surrounding Jesus. And what we need to see in all of this, the lesson that we're going to look at here is how very important it is to obey the command of Jesus to come to him when he calls because he's never going through Jericho again, right? This is it. The cross is on the other side of this trip, right? It's a good thing that these two sought the Lord that day because Jesus is never gonna pass that way again. That's the reality of it. And the same is true for for many of us in this life. No one knows if Jesus is ever going to pass this way again, giving us another opportunity to cry out to him for salvation or for help, right? We live, you know, in a so-called Christian nation. And I think because of that, we can be a little bit callous, right? Because we often hear about salvation. We often hear about the forgiveness of sins, right? The chance to secure a place in heaven uh, for ourselves, to be saved, uh, to come into a personal relationship with God. We often hear about the willingness of God to, to help us in our need, you know, and it can be very easy for us, I think, especially in the affluence and security of our culture, it can be easy for us to think, you know, there's always another chance to respond to the call. You know, there's going to be another Sunday to do that. I'll do it next week. I'll do it next month. You know, really, what's the hurry? But the problem with that is you're not guaranteed it tomorrow, right? None of us are. All of us, you know, here today, When we hear the call of Christ, we need to respond to the call of Christ, right? If we deal with today correctly, that's all we need. We just need today. The Bible says today's the the appointed time to answer the call, to place our faith in in Jesus Christ because we never know if we're going to have another opportunity to receive Christ, to cry out to him. You know, I don't have to tell you, we all know how fragile life truly is, right? You know, uh, how quickly things can take a turn for the worse, how fast life can slip away. I mean, many of you guys know back in June, my mom came to live with us. You know, it's going to be a great blessing for my mom. It's going to be a great blessing for our family. We're going to spend quality time together. And she got COVID and she died two months ago. No one saw it coming. She didn't see it coming. I guarantee you right? The world's getting so crazy. Today is the day that we need to place our faith in Christ and draw near to him because you don't know if you'll ever have another chance to do that. You know, for my mom, thankfully, it wasn't a question about salvation. She was a believer, you know, but the lesson, again, is we can never disregard the call of Jesus to come to him, right? Not only if we haven't yet received him as a savior, but for us, as believers here this morning, when he calls you to turn to him, to go deeper with him, we need to respond immediately. It's something that I think about quite often. You know, I think about all the things that God has to keep track of in this great big world of his. I mean, you know, it's really something when you, when you think about it. It's crazy, right? He knows every single one of us currently. He knows every detail about our life, even the most minute detail, right? And it's really amazing, you know, God's Holy Spirit is working every day on every single life to draw them to Jesus, whether they're a believer or not, right? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to give you a greater love and a greater fire for Jesus Christ as your Savior, right? And for the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit, of course, is working in their heart to show them the need for a Savior. The Holy Spirit is working every day, in every single life, believer and unbeliever, extending to us an invitation to come to Jesus. And we must respond to that invitation as soon as we hear it. You know, we also want to Uh, notice real quick, these two men believed in Jesus. They exercised faith in Jesus. As Jesus calls them, uh, these two men, to to himself, he says to them, verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 33, they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. I mean, it's kind of a funny question when you think about it. I mean, you know, what are these two guys going to say? Hey, maybe you could, you know, Give us the winning numbers to this week's lottery. You know, what do you say, Jesus, huh? You know, I mean, what are they going to say? Jesus knows exactly what they're going to ask him for, though, right? But Jesus is doing a couple of things right here that are very important. First, he's giving these two guys a chance to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ, right? So that when Jesus changes their lives, the entire crowd is going to know who Jesus is, not just these two Uh, Guys, the entire crowd is going to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then secondly, Jesus is literally opening the storehouse of heaven to these two men and their type of faith. That's important. Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do for you? You know, just let me know what it is you're after. What do you need? And their response, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. They believed that Jesus was able to heal them. That was their confession of faith. They believed that Jesus was able to change their lives forever and restore their sight to them. And we read in verse 34, Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight. Now, this would be a wonderful story if it just ended right here. We would close up the Bible and just say, that's amazing, but it doesn't stop right here right? We need to take note what their response was to the life-changing compassion and touch of Jesus Christ because it's so very instructive for us, right? It says, after Jesus showed them mercy and grace, after he touched them with compassion and made them whole again, they said, man, I'm going to run right out to Costco take advantage of the free samples because I'm kind of hungry, you know, I'm going to get me a big Samsung TV and I'm going to go home and start watching TV because I got a lot of television programs that I need to check catch up on. You know, that's not what they said, right? That's not what happened. How sad would that be if that's what they were going to do with this, this you know, new healing in their life, that, what they're going to do with their eyes. It's not what happened. What does it say? It says that they followed him. They express their gratitude to Jesus for changing their lives by becoming followers of his. And Mark's parallel account of this story, right? Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And in a sense, these guys say to Jesus, you're our way now, Lord. We're following after you. And that's what they did. They followed Jesus. They became followers of Jesus. Often, if not all the time, we can think about salvation and following Jesus in terms of what type of blessing it is to us. You know, we're a little self-centered that way, you know? And it, it, it is a great blessing, to be sure. I mean, it's a wonderful blessing, wonderful thing to walk with the Lord. But you think about the faith of these two guys and how precious it was to Jesus, right? How much it meant to him at this time. Again, right around the corner is the cross, right? All the hardship, all the suffering, all the shame that's ahead of him. For him to realize, and of course he knew what, you know, his sacrifice would accomplish in the lives of so many, but to see it demonstrated in this way, for him to realize, you know, at this time that there are men and women who are willing to listen, willing to place their faith in him, You know, that their lives may be changed and become something totally different than what they are. Men and women who will desire to follow him, right, with their lives. Just think about what that must have meant for Jesus right before he meets the cross. You know, if you think about the world today, much of the world today, just like in Jesus's day, rejects him as the Messiah, rejects him as the Savior, And the only faith that I can control in the world today is my own faith. So that's the only faith I have control over. And tell you the truth, I'm thankful for the opportunity to exercise faith in Jesus Christ in a way that blesses him, in a way that, you know, blesses his heart. And that's first by, of course, accepting that free gift of uh, salvation, receiving him as my Savior, followed by me following him with a whole heart as my Lord and master. That's what blesses Jesus. We're told that these two men first heard, they cried out, they came, they believed, and they followed him. And the Bible declares to every one of us that there's a changed life to be received on the other side of that progression for each one of us too, right? If a person is maybe watching online, uh, I don't know uh, everybody's heart here. If a person's here that is unsaved this morning, you know what? Every person has heard this morning enough to place their faith in Jesus Christ, right? Enough to cry out to him. And I would encourage people to cry out to him, right? And to come to him this morning, you know? Don't let this call pass by without responding to it. Place your faith in Him and have your life change forever. And then watch what your believing in Him will produce in your life. As He opens your eyes to the truth, believing for the unsaved person becomes seeing in their life. And then give your life over to Him and become a committed follower of Him and Jesus, uh, of Jesus. And if... You know, you're watching online and you're an unbeliever. You know, you can look up to God this morning and say, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I believe that it's my sins that have kept me from a relationship from you, a holy God. But I also believe, Lord, that you loved me enough that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he died for my sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. And I come to you right now, placing my faith and trust In his sacrifice. I repent. I want to turn from my old life. And my old ways. And I want to follow you now with a whole heart. And when a person does that. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into their life. And they become born again. Forgiven of their sins. Made a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And they receive a fresh start. And a clean slate. To live a life for Jesus Christ. But what does this story mean for us as believers here this morning? And that's what I want to focus on. What does it mean for us? I think it's a strong encouragement to each of us to follow hard after Jesus Christ. He's calling each of us. His Holy Spirit is here today working on each of our hearts. You know, to follow him like never before. My prayer is that each of us would have ears to hear the call to follow him like never before, to follow him with a whole undivided singleness of heart, with a fresh and new determination to follow him and not be distracted by others around us, not to be distracted by the world around us, but to openly confess him before others and to go deeper in our relationship with him, right? I know so many people, and, and it's a sad story. I know so many people that have felt the call of God upon their life to follow him into a deeper relationship through service to him, call to be a missionary, call to serve in the church, call to, um, you know, be a pastor. But one thing or another kind of got in the way, and they didn't respond to the call. You know, don't get me wrong. These people that I'm referring to, they're believers in the Lord. They love the Lord. They're on their way to heaven. We're going to see him in heaven. But they fail to answer the call. And now they're not enjoying all that the Lord has, has for them. The wonder and the excitement, right, of seeing him moving mightily in their lives in unimaginable ways. And those people I know, they actually regret that they didn't respond Uh, when called, because time has passed, you know, and, you know, that call never came again. These two guys weren't going to let this moment pass, right? They heard, they cried out to Jesus, they answered the call, right? They believed Jesus, Jesus for great things, and they followed Jesus because he radically changed their lives. How many of you have that testimony. God radically changed my life. Man, I was running to hell as fast as I could when Christ touched my life, and he changed me. You know what? The choice is ours. And we're going to take, are we going to take what he's done for us in our lives and run off to Costco? Is that what you're going to do? You know? Are we going to respond with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to follow him? I'm going to tell you right now, if you haven't heard me say it, I'll tell you now, I'm going to follow Christ. And I invite each and every one of you, I invite us as a church, Calvary Chapel Truckee, to run after him too. I'm going one way or another. I want you to come with me. Will you make that decision to come with me? Let's run the race. Let's give our life more completely to Him and simple obedience to Him with a greater determination to live for Him than we've ever had in the past, right? Let's let our faith go beyond saving faith to absolute surrender, complete surrender to Him as the Lord of our life. Let's purpose in our hearts to allow ourselves to be consumed by the Lord. Every thought, every word, every deed for his glory, right? Let's do it as a church, committed servants to the Lord, and let's see what he'll do with us in this town and beyond. Nothing less should be our response for what he's done uh, in our life because nothing less than our complete surrender is worthy of what he's done in our life. You know what? Just letting you know, this is the way I think. I think crazy things. I'm just an American. (laughs) You know what? I don't want much. I just want more. And I want more of Jesus Christ in my life because that's what I need. That's what I need. He is my greatest need. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would help us. Lord, as many as heard the voice of your spirit this morning. Lord, many as is, is, is heard you, I'm not interested in anybody hearing me, but as many as heard you this morning, Lord, I pray help us not allow this moment to pass without responding to you. Lord, may those who are uh, watching online that not saved, Lord, may they hear you and cry out to you and place their faith in you and receive your saving, compassionate touch in their lives. Right? But for those of us who are saved, Lord, may we respond to the call upon our life to make a commitment to an ever deepening walk with you, to run after you, Lord, to put you first in our lives, to live for you like we've never lived for you before with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, work a work in us that none of us have even dared to dream. Lord Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.